1: Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. I'm going to waste none of your time. Stage 5, into Privas, of the Tour de France. Benji, give us a rundown of what this stage looked like before it started.
0: Okay, today's stage starts in Gap and finished in Privas. Now, I pronounce it Privas all the time, but apparently it's Privas in French, so my bad. Either way, it is a relatively flat parkour throughout. We've got a start at around 1,000 altitude, and we basically slowly but surely make our way down to sea level, which is about 30 kilometers from the line. When we come by sea level, then we go upwards a bit. We've got one small climb, the Côte de saint vincent de Barré. And then we go downhill once again for a few kilometers. And then basically we have 1.2 kilometers at 3.4%, slowly but surely making our way to the finish line, which is actually a flat finish. While everybody advertises it as a hill finish necessarily, it's He'll finish, per se, the last five kilometers, but the last 200-300 meters were surely in a flat area. Now, throughout the stage, not much happened. I gotta be honest there. It was so boring. But despite that, I do have some stuff to tell you about the stage itself. We started off with Asgren trying the uh, only attack of the day, and he basically attacked away for... A good 40 meters Thomas again bridged up to him and they basically were caught directly after Bora decided to chase them down and that was the end of the breakaway of the day they didn't form another breakaway nobody else attacked and we basically had a whole day of having no breakaway i recall this being the first time since i think 2009 i think where they were protesting against using your communication or something and they decided to not make a breakaway but this time around it was solely by accident so it's an interesting thing to see but yeah we had no breakaway all day nonetheless we went to the intermediate sprint which was still an interesting part and we had Bennett take the majority of the points there Sagan didn't do too well there once again so he's been losing quite a few points at intermediate sprints to Bennett recently and we made our way down to the first KM of the day, which is the Col de serre And it was basically taken by Cosnefort, who got it for free in the peloton. Nobody else really cared. Then we went to the next KM section, which is Saint-Vincent de Baret. And on that one, Cosnefort got it for free once again. So the KM points went solely to Cosnefort today. So he just strengthened his lead. And after that, we had some action, which was honestly quite interesting. We had Ineos move up to the front and do some echelon action. But at this point onwards, I'm going to drop it to you because we've got a pretty cool ending to the stage. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, well, I just want to say in advance of doing the actual ending of the stage, this stage was done at a crazy slow pace. I don't know whether there was uh, like an informal protest in the peloton because it was so strange to not even see one of the pro-continental French teams just throw a rider out there you know, even in a suicide break for five to seven kilometers. And it would have been possible because the pace being set was so low. Like they did on a gentle downhill false flat in the first hour. They averaged like just under 40 kilometers an hour, which is insanely slow. And I want to have a look at maybe the power data of uh, Sepkus or some of the other riders who had been sitting in all day. It must have been some of their you know lowest power ever. In at least the first ninety-five percent of this stage, but in the last eight kilometers, you know, maybe the reason for it being such an easy stage up to that was because people were scared of the forecasted crosswinds or headwinds, and they didn't want to go on the break. I don't really believe that. I've seen teams, you know, some of the lower continental pro continental teams try anyway, even if it's going to be doomed, but. Crosswinds and headwinds were projected, but nothing really happened until maybe ten kilometers, eight kilometers to go, where Ineos, who I've been talking about this, uh, I think I did announce, I well, said this when Chris Froome and Grant Thomas were left off the Ineos team. I said in the live stream, you know, Dave Brailsford mentioned we're going to have to do things differently to try and gain time uh, in this year's Tour de France, and I read that as meaning they were going to try and gain time in places other than the mountains. And given that there's no, you know, team time trials or anything, they're not going to gain time on the pure flat stages. So they're going to have to try and gain time in maybe Windy Park or roly roly terrain. And it didn't surprise me that Ineos came to the front. They've got very strong riders on the flat. They've actually, I think their team is stronger on the flat and in crosswinds than in the mountains right now, with Luke Rowe very strong. In crosswinds, he set up Ian Stannard in a crosswind section in paris Bay one year in you know the last 25 kilometres. Andre Amador, quite strong on the flat. Even Egan Bernal is okay, actually. He's got a pretty good engine for such a small guy uh, on the flat, I think. And Dylan Van Baal as well. Sivikov, when he's on form, he's a bit injured, but when he's on form, he's actually, you know, usually he's a pretty big dude, like tall and got a lot of power. They came to the front and actually... Started driving it really hard in this crosswind section. Luke Rowe, Amador, Castroviejo was initially got them there and quick Kofsky to the front, and even Eggenbauer was rolling turns. But I'm going to call this sort of some crosswind, some crosswind foreplay. It wasn't crosswind chaos. They just what the wind wasn't strong enough, and it, it wasn't a long enough section for them to do any damage, like real damage. They certainly made people very very nervous. It also prove to me that Jumbo Visma are not the most experienced or best at just keeping their leader in good position and safe and anticipating where in a stage things might start to get a little bit hairy you know that sort of sixth sense that Luke Rowe seems to have You saw it yesterday at the end of stage four he just had this sixth sense that this stage is you know it's getting a little bit sketchy I'm just going to bring Egan to the front and get into that 3K marker safely and I'm going to you know, drive it really hard for 90 seconds. I think Yumbo Bizma aren't quite as good at that sort of thing and it showed today they were out of position when Ineos were driving it. There were some mini echelons starting to form. You could see riders like groups fanning out sideways across the road, maybe four or five, but there was no real split between them because the crosswind section wasn't long enough. Jumbo Visma were not in that first echelon, um, but they did have Tony Martin on the front driving it, so he got them back pretty quickly when... I think Ineos gave it up because they knew they weren't really going to be able to gain much much time. and But yeah, some nervous moments. Thibaut Pino was caught out of position. Balcomolama actually got caught. There was a split uh right sort of right at the back in the last third Balcom got caught in the uh bad end bad side of that split. I'm not sure where Richie Port was. But yeah, were you surprised, Benji, that Ineos tried something in the crosswinds today or um were you surprised by you know, where Jumbo-Visma were. It seemed I'm not sure if you were listening to the Belgian commentary, weren't they weren't they calling it out and predicting this would happen?
0: They were indeed calling out that there was a possibility of having echelons at that point, so I feel like Jumbo should have been more aware at that point. They were pretty far back, and that's not ideal at all. And the fact that some people are still called out at that moment might be that it's so close to the finish line, because you don't often see teams really push it hard near the finish line. We saw it with Quick Step 1s in the Vuelta, I think, back. I'm not sure about that anymore. Maybe in the Giro as well in 2017, if I recall correctly, for Gaviria. But I've recently not seen too much crosswind necked in the last seven to eight kilometers. So while it was that late in the race, I was also already thinking, well, it's a bit late to have crosswind, isn't it? But they did do it. And I like that they did it because it gives some extra action to this stage, which was already kind of a boring stage in the run in there. So it added to the spectacle and they have to do it because they indeed, like you said, need to get extra time on but Roglic and such, and they might have less opportunities in the mountains than they do on these sort of occasions. So that's pretty great to see that they use that. And I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing similar stuff on the Ilderé stage. I think that's stage 10. I'm not sure about it.
1: Yes, stage 10. And Ineos have done this sort of thing before, famously the Chris Froome and Grant Thomas getting onto Bodnar and Sagan uh, for Froome to gain 8 to 10 seconds. Uh, maybe in the 2016 Tour de France, that was more a show of strength. He was in yellow, I think, at that time already. So, Ineos do do these sorts of things. It was more of a tester. You know, even if things had gone really well for them, the most they would have gained on Jumbo Visma would have been oh, not very much time, to be honest. And given that the sprinters teams were really incentivized to bring them back, I'm not. Sure. it was always sort of destined to failure. Alaphilippe was actually in a really good position. He was right there at the front um for on Egan Bernal's wheel. But anyway, we'll move on to the finale. That's something definitely to watch and stage 10, you know, maybe if you're just looking at the route profiles, it looks like a boring flat sprint stage. That's going to be one we should definitely be tuning in for and watching closely because I think hopefully there'll be some wind and we can see more of this. But in the finale, it was Sunweb once again having clearly I think the strongest lead-out train uh, in this year's Tour de France, Soren Croix-Anderson was on the front driving it. It was sort of an uphill drag finish. Um, the, fin- the final sprint speeds were about 65 kilometers an hour so the actual sprint itself was as Benji mentioned at the top a n- sort of normal sprint maybe you know, mon- uh, 1% gradient or something, 1.5% gradient but it was sort of an uphill drag and it put a few of the pure sprinters I think under a lot of pressure what Sunweb did and I need to apologize I think to all the Dutch fans, Case Bowl, <laughs> Case Bell's family, uh, his you know his local town. All the Dutch fans have been very very cranky with what I said about him in my betting preview saying he wouldn't win a stage and listen I haven't lost that bet yet but he obviously is actually quite good for a big guy on these sorts of finales. Uh, that's why Sunweb were trying to make it so hard from so far out. It put Viviani under pressure. He got dropped and not looking particularly good for him. Um, but, yeah, Sunweb had like four men left in the last kilometre. Sam Bennett, his lead-out train is not looking particularly good. I could barely see anyone from Quickstep keeping him safe. Sagan was there maybe fifth or fourth wheel uh, the whole time on the Sunweb train. And I think what Sagan is lacking in the watts, he's just making up for in experience at this point, being able to be in perfect position. Early creating space, getting on the right wheels, and then that's allowing him to just get these consistent top five sprints. I think Sunweb's lead out was the reason why Ewan didn't even wasn't really a factor in this uh, final sprint at all. And I haven't seen the overhead helicopter shot yet, but it looked to me like Wout van Aert and Sagan who just had that high absolute power, they went and sat on probably just behind Casebolt's wheel. Case Bowl got dropped off, I think, at a pretty good point. Actually, the commentators said it was too early. I disagree. I think it was quite a, almost a perfect lead-out from Sunweb. Honestly, he got dropped off with a slightly left-hand bending finish at maybe 200 metres to go or just under, I think, maybe 175, and it's a flat sort of flatter finish as well. His lead-out man drifted off to the right-hand side. Case Bowl got that inside run on the left-hand rail. Perfect work. Uh, we've seen Richese, that's how where he likes to drop off his men and then he drifts out into the middle. But when Case Bowl kicked, there was only one man that could follow him. And, sorry, not even follow him, he just went around to the right-hand side, or the long way around, around Bowl's last man, and it was Wout Van Aert. The man who was driving it from 3.8 k's to go to to 1,500 metres to go for over 200 kilometres at the end of a Category 1 climb in a mountaintop finish, by the way, which he would have been doing over 6 watts per kilo for that time on the front yesterday at a pretty high weight, you know, in the mid-70 kilos. Doing that yesterday, setting up and helping the Roglic stage win, and then today, coming around the long way in this sort of uphill drag finish. Yes, he got to recover a little bit because it was an easy stage before then, and kicking Case Bold, who has looked really good, actually, in the sprints, he looked good in stage one, and beating him on the line. An incredible sprint from Wab Thanat. And he wasn't even in Ball slipstream for the entirety of the sprint. He did it himself and had to go the long way around, as I said. They almost gapped Sam Bennett and Peter Sagan. Ewan was nowhere to be seen. I thought he'd actually been dropped because when I was looking at the overhead shot with one kilometre to go, I couldn't even see him. And I thought, oh, well, maybe... It's a case of them trying to bring him back late again. And I did see Roger Kluger, I think, bringing him up. But yeah, he was Kluger, I think, couldn't bring him up as far as he wanted to. You can see when you look on the front end shot with about six hundred to go, Ewan actually comes round Kluger and he's trying to get onto Bennett and, and Sagan. But that would have been that would've cost him a lot of energy actually at that point. And yeah, he wasn't really a factor in this sprint, even though he was the two to one favourite. Bennett was the second favourite. What did you think, Benji? Were you did you have any uh, predictions about Wild Lanark winning today's sprint?
0: Well, we both yesterday said that he was going to be a factor of potentially winning, and I called him as my prediction for today, you as well. So we basically got a three out of five with the podcast so far. Nonetheless, I believe that this stage reminded me a lot of the stage of the Dauphiné one last year. Bit of a technical finish because in the last three ish kilometers, plenty of road furniture, even roundabouts. And fun fact, they even took away a roundabout in the last 300 meters, paid €50,000 to have the tour pause there in Priva just for that roundabout. So especially the fact that it's so technical certainly helped a Van out and a Sagan with their positioning because you said that Sunweb was indeed one of the main factors that led to the real sprinters not being up there at that point towards the end. But I've got the feeling it's a combination of both because the last kilometer was so narrow that I believe that you had to be in a good position already with 1.5 to 1k to go. Otherwise, you were pretty much done for already. And I believe that Vinod and Sagan did that perfectly. I think Sagan even had one person ahead of him at some point there in the last kilometer. And Vanad was also near that wheel. And they basically just sat in the wheel of, of Bull there. And the moment that Bull went, they went. And in the end, Vinod, yeah, great. We got our prediction. And.
1: Well, Vinod having no lead out sort of having to do it all himself and then, yeah, just winning that stage. I think from talking about Sagan and his, you know, him coming these consistent top fives, his strategy seems to be get into the the best position possible early and then open up that sprint early. I think he did that on stage. Well, one of the stages when Daniel Oss was leading him out, open up the sprint early so at least – He's not getting boxed in, so don't get boxed in. Yeah, open it up early, and that way, yeah, you, he, he ends up getting swamped, but it's still he still ends up, you know, coming fifth or fourth and collecting those points, even though he, you know, he clearly doesn't have the watts of a Sam Bennett or Caleb Ewan at this moment in time, but you know, still getting up there in the top five consistently in these sprints. Right now, actually, in the green jersey competition. He and Bennett are basically even money, uh, at two dollars each. So that's kind of surprising to me. I think that's a little bit short sighted based on what we've seen, you know, over the years from Sagan. We've not even got into the hard stages yet. You know, Sam Bennett how's he gonna be looking after some proper mountain stages whereas Sagan, you know, we know what he can do with his consistency throughout a tour. So I still think Sagan should be the prohibitive favourite for the green jersey, even though now Sam Bennett, who I think beats Sagan in this final sprint as well and took the intermediate points ahead of Sagan, he's going to be wearing the green jersey tonight. How long he'll wear that, I'm not sure. I saw somewhere that he's like the first Irish rider to wear a jersey in the Tour de France for like 30 years or something. So good for Ireland. There's a lot of interest in Ireland following Sam Bennett right now. Um... But yeah, what do you think about the green jersey competition, Benji? Is it a legitimate competition this year or do you still think Sagan is going to run away with it?
0: I believe it's closer than ever. I feel like Sagan indeed is not necessarily there with a kick in the sprint anymore. Like you mentioned already, he seems to be trying to go early and hoping that it comes out all right. And that doesn't always work as once again is shown in Priva today. I believe that Sagan does still have the upper hand with all the intermediate sprints and all the attempts that he will do to take that. Now, we don't know if Bennett will go that far in the sense that will he go ham in the hardest stages as well? Or is he basically just trying to get as much as possible on these flattest stages? That's going to depend a lot on the coming weeks. I do believe that Sagan's better at that. He's going to be more efficient at gaining points at hardest stages than Bennett is on paper. But Yeah, I guess we'll find out. I believe that we've got a bit of a challenge there and it's fun to have a challenge there because in the previous years, despite liking Sagan, it's a bit obvious that he was going to win green. And the only reason he didn't win green that one year was because he was disqualified. So on paper, I do believe that there is a bit of a challenge now. I'm not sure how large the challenge is, but I'm eager to see how it will evolve in the coming weeks.
1: So just to read out the like, top 10 on the stage, because we haven't closed that out yet. Well, Van Art first, Case Bowles second, the Sunweb Sprinter, Sam Bennett third, Peter Sagan fourth, actually, Jasper Stuyven fifth. So Trek are changing who they're, they're leading out for the sprint on a daily basis. Stage one, it was Pedersen. The last sprint stage, it was Edward Turns who came sixth, and now Jasper Stuyven fifth. Luca Metz gets the Sprinter for Michigan Scott sixth, Brian Cockard seventh. Caleb Ewan eighth, Clement Venturini, Fajdualem Mondial ninth, and Hugo Alstetter for Israel Startup Nation tenth, Giacomo Nitsolo eleventh, and yeah, I'm a little bit surprised Nitsolo couldn't break the top ten in that stage. Maybe he's not on great form, but he looked pretty good on the you know in that headwind sprint the other day. So yeah, it's a little bit of a disappointing result for uh, Nitsolo. He definitely should be a cut above Cockard and uh, Venturini, but as you mentioned, Benji technical finish. Maybe he was at it. It's more about, you know, positioning was very, very important in that stage, more than just the watts uh, as well. But let's have a look at Stage 6 tomorrow and preview that stage. It's another mountaintop finish, and I think one that's going to have more GC time splits than we saw yesterday in Stage 4. We didn't really see any time splits apart from the bonus seconds in Stage 4 yesterday. It's pancake flat with until maybe a a Category 3 climb 143 kilometres into the stage. They kept the cost two kilometres long at 7.3%. I don't think we'll see too much happen there. There's an intermediate sprint actually 125 k's into the stage. So I'll be watching that actually a bit closer than usual just because of the Bennett-Sagan green jersey tension. But then the stage really heats up the 191 kilometre stage in the last 40 kilometres. We've got another Category 3, the Col de Mores, 5.8 5.8 kilometers long at 5.1%, and I think what you called this a, a staircase climb, Benji, in the Tour de France preview podcast, where you know it's that category three I mentioned, then a category one, the Col de la Luzette, 11.8 k's at 7.2%, then a short descent, then a sort of a false flat finish into uh, at the end of Mont Agual at about 1560 meters altitude, so. It doesn't look too hard, the 11.8K is at 7.2%, but that's, that profile is actually hiding 5 kilometres at over 10% in that climb. If you look on the profile really closely, you can see the end of it's a little bit flatter and there's some flatter sections in that climb. So there is a steep section there. I'm not sure who we predicted win would win that stage, but it looks like one where actually Bernal, you know, You've got to take every opportunity that there is for you. 5K is at 10%, 11%. That sort of should be suiting Bernal on paper. What do you think will happen on the GC tomorrow, Benji? Do you think uh, surely a break will go at the start of the stage?
0: I hope a break goes because otherwise we have this similar scenario as today and we don't want that. When it comes to tomorrow, I do believe that a breakaway will win. That's what I said in the uh, TDF predictions we did. I had Lutsenko on that stage. I'm not sure about his form, honestly. And I'm not sure he's he'll be allowed to go because I feel like he's been very domesticky towards Lopez so far. You had Rogueli Torello Philippe for this stage. And I certainly believe that you are right on that. I'm not necessarily saying Bernal because I believe that Coldaluzet feels like a Vuelta-style finish in the sense that it's a relatively steep but not a very long climb. And... That reminds me of all the routes that Roglic and Pogacar were great on during the Vuelta, and I believe that Roglic indeed will be uh, very important when it comes to GC on this Code La Luzette, and I believe that he can honestly do something there towards Bernal and not the other way around, because despite it being a proper climb finally, I do believe that Bernal needs more of the longer climbs and maybe a little bit less when it comes to the... Percentage compared to a Roglic who thrives on the shorter, well, not the shortest, but these mid range climbs with relatively high percentages. That's where Roglic thrived in the Vuelta So I believe that him and Pogachar might try and do something here GC wise. And I believe that Pogachar might have more freedom than a Roglic here. I'm not sure why, but I'm, I would say that either it's a breakaway or Pogachar on my end.
1: I think I agree, Pogacar, but then again, you know, it's not like in Vuelta where Roglic had enough time on him and he let him go up the road and Movistar weren't strong enough to chase him. If if Pogacar goes, attacks, you know, Jumbo Vizma have to chase it back. He's, yeah. well, I think, the third or fourth favorite for the Tour right now. He's ahead of Pino. Um, I think he should be well ahead of Dumoulin. I actually think it's going to be a real fight for the white jersey this year between him and Bernal. I think Pogaccio looks uh, in really, really good form based on what he did yesterday. But, uh, I know it sounds boring, but I, I honestly think Roglic could win this stage again. Yeah, uh, yeah like, I know, you know, I've been criticised, we got a little bit of criticism um, for Tour de France betting, pre. oh, the preview we did, the preview podcast for just talking about Roglic, Alaphilippe Bernal all the time, but, I look at this profile. I, you know, we see what Roglic does at the end of the climbs. I see the absence of uh, a train strong enough to drop him, or a pu- you know a, a climber able to drop him earlier in the stage, like you know Pete Quintana. And I think, well, if it comes down to a, a sprint at the end of this stage, then you know he, he is going to be the favourite for that sprint. Hopefully, a breakaway goes. But yeah, Roglic is my pick again. Sorry for being boring. I think Alaphilippe will lose uh, a lot of, you know, a, a lot of time on that stage. And I'm just seeing something now on Twitter, Benji. And this could be fake news, but it's from La Flamme Rouge on Twitter, who we both respect as providing accurate information. He says a time penalty for Alaphilippe for taking a bid on in the final few kilometers of the race. Adam <laughs> Yates is the new race leader. <laughs> what?
0: Okay, that's special. I did not see that one coming. But it does indeed seem true, which is interesting and
1: sorry to be breaking news mid-podcast, everybody, (laughs) but I this is crazy and this is this is just the most I mean this is classic UCI, right? Like I made a I spoke about how you know they didn't they didn't do anything the comment says about Sam Bennett endangering Caleb Ewan. Ignored that, fine. And then something which has no effect on the race really like it it honestly it's not endangering anyone it's not like there's any it's not like okay when Chris Room went back to get a gel in the last 20 kilometers or whatever it was uh or Port went back or something took a time penalty on a, a proper mountain stage when he'd been dropped yeah okay that's that's bending the rules to actually protect yourself on GC it was no GC ramifications for this stage stage five okay he, maybe he was just an oversight or whatever. Or, you know, maybe you could say, oh, well, you know, if he's more dehydrated in the last five kilometres or two kilometres, then his recovery will be impacted. But he literally took a bid on in like the final few kilometres of the stage and he's now got a time penalty. Classic UCI or ASO or whoever decides this. Um, just making a bad story out of nothing and just so unnecessary. What's your reaction to that, Benji?
0: I disagree. I feel like when there are rules, you need to apply it equally. And Verona got the penalty, so Philippe should get it as well. Obviously, it's annoying and it kind of hides the cycling part of it. But that's what happens. If you break a rule, you should get fined for it. And this is a rule that every cyclist knows. And it's a, just a stupid mistake by Philippe and the And I'm fine with him losing the yellow jersey over that because it's... Yeah, it's kind of his own damn fault. I am a fan of Alaphilippe as well. I love how he rides and such, but I feel like rules need to be applied consistently, and this is one of those occasions. So, yeah, Adam Yates is the new leader of the Tour de France.
1: Wow, well, that's crazy. Um, Mitch and Scott are probably going to be pretty surprised by that too. They didn't think they'd be gifted the yellow jersey for a day. I can't wait to see what Patrick Lefebvre says on Twitter. I'm just refreshing Twitter right now to see what he has to say. <laughs> He's yeah. going to blow up. That's going to be good to watch at least. So boring stage, but hey, maybe, maybe I should agree with you because the uh, ASO slash UCI have given us given us another talking point to talk about. Um, but yeah, certainly Quickstep will be quite annoyed by that. So that's pretty much stage five wrapped up. We've got a little bit extra out of it. Uh, we had a few other things to touch on. Given that, first one was the Anemiek van vloyten has gone to Movistar. We'll just wrap that up first. That got announced. I think a two-year deal. She's leaving Mitch and Scott. I don't blame her, given that she, um, yeah, she's didn't get paid like seventy percent of her salary for most of the year, and I think they're still having payment issues at Mitch and Scott. If there's one rider who doesn't need, uh, teammates or strong teammates, which I'm not saying that's not the case at Movistar. You know, they got Mavi Garcia, who's been almost her main rival in some of these races, especially Strade at Movistar. But, yeah, Annemiek van can she can win without teammates. So that seems like a good move for her. Someone mentioned that it was like the bikes she didn't like that Mitch and Scott were using next year, but I I don't really know why. You know, what the real reasons are that she's moving, I'd always assume it's because she hasn't been getting paid. We'd contribute to that. Um, but, yeah, quite a nice team with her and Mavi Garcia next year. And I didn't even like the way Mitch and Scott were riding for her in a lot of these races. We criticised what they did in GP uh, Plouet with uh, Grace Brown, I think it was. Yeah, the way they were riding with Annemiek didn't really make sense to us. So, yeah, what, what do you think about the Van Vluyen move, Benji?
0: Honestly, you know more about women's cycling than me, and I'm not sure if she has more support or less support at that team, but it's a change that she announced quite happily, and I look forward to seeing her ride in the corners of Movistar. That's honestly most of what I've got to say about it. I also like seeing when a very important rider within women's cycling switches team just to see how the team reacts to that, because I think Amanda Spratt is now being promoted a bit towards being in a more leader's position next year at Mitchelton. So I'm honestly curious. I want to look forward to it and hopefully we get some crazy racing next year between Movistar and Mitchelton Scott.
1: Yeah, it's good for Spratt's ambitions. You know, Spratt's probably top three, top five climber in the world. She was definitely like the third best Climber in the Giro Rosa last year behind Van der Breggen and Van Vleuten and sort of had to sacrifice her ambitions a little bit. Not too much, but she did for Van Vleuten. So, yeah, good for an Australian perspective um, for her to probably get get the reins at uh, Mitch and Scott for the Giro Rosa next year. The next bit of news was the change of the World Championships uh, location. So, as you know, the World Championships uh, were cancelled in, in Martini and they've been moved to to Italy in Imola. Is it Imola, Benji? Yes, um, it is. So they're using like the F1 circuit, I think, or like a, some sort of circuit is, again, and there's a three-kilometer long 10% climb. I'm not going to talk about this too much. We're going to obviously do a proper World Champs podcast and preview, etc. But the thing I do want to mention is there's no under-23s or junior race, I don't think, which is it's pretty disappointing. From my perspective, you know, i I'm I'm very, really good friends with Seb Berwick, the writer that signed with Israel Startup Nation. Uh, you'll, you'll see him next year doing better than people think in big races. I think, but anyway, he you know th- these guys train. He trains just as hard as World Tour guys, harder than some, harder than some World Tour guys. You know, this guy was doing he on one weekend he did a 300k ride and a 400k ride back to back days at like over 210 normalized at. 60, 59 kilos, like guys training really hard because he had sort of Worlds and Lavernier and maybe Giro in his sights and he was going to do really well in them and they've all been cancelled and it's not like, you know, the professionals, yeah, yeah, you miss a year, but those races will be there next year. This is kind of like college for these guys in that he only, this this was his one shot, maybe at Lavernier, his one shot at under 23 Worlds, oh, he, no, he'll be old enough. I think all oh, the professionals don't normally do under 23 Worlds except Higuita did last year. So maybe under 23 Worlds he'll be able to do. But, yeah, it's really disappointing. He's just one example. He's one of many riders, these young guys i talked to, you know, who we're not going to see at under 23 Worlds. And I love that race. You know, the race last year was really exciting too, notwithstanding the echo of disqualification. The women's race as well, you know, same, same things apply to the women's race and the juniors as well I think has been cancelled. So... I don't really know how it's impossible logistically to not have those races. I feel like it's a real shame for the development of those riders and the exposure of those riders as well., like, but yeah, that's just you can probably hear my disappointment. What was your reaction to the announcement, Benji?
0: Pretty similarly, I knew that it was between the Imala Parkour and I think it was Blanche de Belfi that was also in the running as well and some other French regions. Now, I'm somewhat happy that it's in Italy because the situation regarding COVID and such is looking more bright in Italy than it is in France. And therefore, it's got a bigger chance of actually happening. That's uh, my main reason that I'm happy about Inwala. It's indeed revolving the um, F1 calls, but also tree climbs in general. But I do want to add to that that the parkours that have been announced are not confirmed yet. So there's no clear parkura uh, release yet if i recall correctly so we don't want to give false information on that just to be sure nonetheless regarding u23 and such indeed quite disappointing those people deserve a world championship as well i think the leaders well the winners of last year keep their jersey next year i think that was what was announced so on one end i do believe that well it depends i'm not sure if quinn simmons and such would be racing the u23 one or the actual one you know any of that
1: I don't know well normally the I think the etiquette was that the professionals at world the world tour guys would not race the under 23 they'd race the elite race but then I, I'm pretty sure Egita rode the under 23 race last year whilst being at education first so uh, I've got no idea what what will happen with that we'll go to a couple of listener questions now just a couple one from uh Ian Hearn with the hashtag LRCP on Twitter LR and Benji, I'm disappointed as an Aussie that we don't get a Richie Port daily update. Well, my answer to you, Ian, is I'm pretty sure the whole of SBS coverage the entire time, which is our uh, sort of free-to-air provider of the Tour de France in Australia, their whole coverage is just a constant uh, Richie Port daily update. And our update on Port is he's been pretty anonymous so far. The next one, Benji, which I, I might throw to you, is from Lars Peterson on Twitter. What do you think about the performance of Border Hansgrow thus far? and especially yesterday's mountaintop finish, German media was really disappointed as Emmanuel Buchmann had no support on the last climb.
0: I agree. I believe that there should have been someone extra with Buchmann on the final climb. Nonetheless, I wouldn't read 100% too much into it yet. There are a lot of teams that drop some people on purpose on the earlier mountain stages to save energy towards the latter parts of the race. Nonetheless, maybe they dropped a person too much on this stage because he certainly needed one rider. So I believe that they might have already thought about dropping some people early and did that and potentially the last person that was with him wasn't up to standards and eventually just wasn't there in the end. And it's a bit disappointing. Nonetheless, I would not read too much into it on just this one mountain stage. That's what I've got as an opinion on it. Do you have a different one or pretty similar?
1: No, I mean, wh- when has you ever know, really been contesting The win in a stage such as that, like he looked good in sort of sprint finishes at the end of long mountain stages in the Tour de France last year, but he, I didn't expect him to be going well in that stage. Now, maybe not to lose any time, but even so, he's never had the kick of a Roglic or such in a climb like that. You know, a fifteen, you know, ten to fifteen minute effort. I like Bookman in the sort of third day of. You know, one, two, three days in a row of hard mountain stages on an endurance basis. You know, him and Kamner and uh, Mulderberger, like Colt is around, I think he looked pretty good. So, yeah, it didn't really change my perspective of Bookman uh, and Bora Hansgrohe. You know, Kamner's had a crash as well, which we didn't mention at the time, but they've been a little bit banged up. Shacklin still kind of recovering, Bookman himself kind of recovering. I think Bookman's still going to be top 5 in GC at least. I think he's going to when the when it really matters in the mountains, I think Bookman is going to go well and you know, he'll be up there with Pinot, Roglic, Bogaccio and Bernal. So, yeah, no need to overreact to what happened on stage 4 I don't think. But that's a that's enough of the news and the listener questions. We'll probably do a big quick uh listener question wrap up on the first rest day so make sure you hit us up on hashtag lrcp on twitter we you know we'll compile them all we look at them all and then we will yeah we'll answer them on the rest day as always if you like the podcast and you want to support us and you know this venture going forwards all we ask for is a racing on your podcast player it actually it really helps out a lot uh especially with you know Hopefully increasing the production budget of this in the near future, which we're we're looking to do, guys. You know, we wanted to make sure we just got the, the content down and the rapport down. Benji and I we'd never even spoken on the phone before we started this and we just got straight into it. So that's why we're just doing things incrementally, not trying to take on too much at once, but we are, trust me, gonna try and progress this and take this to the next level. Benji, any final thoughts on uh, you know, this stage, Yates in yellow, tomorrow stage. Anything before we sign off,
0: I'm going to keep myself thinking about the great thing as a Belgian that Wout van for won, and I hope that tomorrow's stage is quite spectacular as well. Monde wall it's not exactly the uh, most insane climb, but I hope some action happens on it I'm looking forward to the finish there. nonetheless, I want to thank you for the support as well, and I guess that's pretty much it. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye ciao.